This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. A huge thank you to the team from Radiotherapy. They just referred to us as the smartest people in the Southern Hemisphere, and I believe them because they're the richest people in the Southern Hemisphere, those doctors. <laughs> in the studio with me is... Chris KP, good morning, sir. Good morning, how are you? I'm, I'm well, not rich, but well. Uh, Dr. Ewan? I'm good, how are you? I'm good, and Dr. Laura, two weeks in a row. Two weeks in a row. I know, you're not on a plane, you're here, it's no, great to see you so again. so glad to be here. Yeah, we've got Liv doing our Twitter feed. Uh, she's wearing a beanie, which means she must be cold. Um, all good. Uh, but we've got a big show today. We're going to start off with some news, and then we have a guest in to talk about some really cool fire management stuff. And then we have another guest who's already in the studio, which is actually Dr. Laura. She's been <laughs> in, the, in the press, so we're going to talk about her work, and then... Dr. Ewan's going to somehow uncover some stuff about the microbiome in two minutes flat or I'm ten minutes. I'm going to try. Or, yeah, it's we'll a do. relatively large topic. <laughs> yeah. oh, we'll, we'll, we'll nail it to the wall. But let's start with some news. Chris KP, what do you got for us? Um, I've got a, a story which is, uh, on, on one level, it's um, not really that exciting. Um, but, I, but, it, but it got me going, so I don't care about anybody else. Just prepping the audience? Yeah, you know, expectation management. It's, yeah. Set it low. <laughs> exactly. Exactly, <laughs> yes. Therein lies my, that's my bumper sticker. Um, <laughs> <laughs> don't think about that too much, folks. No, um, don't. So, so researchers uh, out of the university, University College Cork in Ireland, have discovered something w- massive, just sort of just off the coast. So, University College Cork, yeah, Ireland, so that, yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah. I like the name of that place. Uh, yeah, yes, I don't. I've not been there. Um, I've been to Cork. Uh, anyway, but they. So, what, what's weirder about that though is that they were doing. Um, so when I, when I think of coastal research, I think beach. Mm-hmm. That's not really what they're working on. Oh. I don't know whether you've hung out at an Irish beach much. It's not the same as one here. It's really freaking cold. But they've gone... But it is. Okay. They just is. I've been um, to Northern Ireland, but yeah. Yeah, well, exactly. and, and this, is further, this is further down yeah, south, it's so cold. it's probably even warmer potentially. Yeah. But what they've done is they've gone, they've gone out to sort of the very edge of the continental shelf. So the, it's proper coast, I suppose. Um, and what they've found is... So let me give you the background here. Plankton hang around near the surface of the water. When they die, they fall down and they fall through the water. When they fall down through, their, through that coral down on the floor, can eat them which is totally cool. Now, the mm. plankton actually have... They, they gather carbon out of the atmosphere um, and they, they, that's part of them. But when they, when they die, of course, that goes down with them. The coral and the seabed actually produce... They, they use that to build their whole everything out of. When they die and it, and it collapses, that all falls, they've found, really, really deep into this massive trench that they've discovered off the mm. continental shelf. And it stays there for ages. Right. So what yeah. they've discovered is not this process, which we understand works, they've discovered there's a whole store of carbon living down there, well, not living down there, hanging out down there, doing not much, which is kind of what you want it to do mm. because that gets it out of the atmosphere. Mm. Um, so it's, they've, they've discovered there is a, so much more in this place and it's been going on for ages. And so they've been doing all kinds of studies and found that it's, um, in the past, it's been really quite a violent place. So this whole thing collapses and turns on itself, etc. At the moment, it's reasonably stable, which is good because we're trying to bottle up as much carbon as we can. Hmm. The bad news is that this is not going to fix climate change <laughs> because it's already happening and climate change is it's already, already happening. However, it does shed a bit of light on the nature of how we ca- how nature is trying to store up carbon and keep things at some sort of you know normal life balance. 
Yeah, mm. the ecologists and me was always thinking, but the coral's dying and, yeah. it's, and it's melting because of yeah. acid. Yeah, so yeah. Well, the there's carbon's that, just going straight well, there's back that up problem again. too. I said that was. The, I had the same <laughs> thing. They didn't mention in the article anything about acidification, and I did sort of go, "Isn't that a thing? Maybe it's not as bad there <laughs> yeah. yet." I don't know, yeah. but yeah, I did it's wonder happening. about that as well. Yeah. Well, so it's interesting because I'm going to go into my story, which I normally don't do the last sure. bit, um, because there's some glaciologists and isotope geochemists have been doing, doing some work on on glacier melts. Ah, yes, and so when there's big changes in ice sheets, so after ice ages and so forth they've been watching how important that is to driving the amount of silica that is in the ocean now silica you think who cares about silica what's the big deal it's you know it's glass right basically but things called diatoms yes. pennant diatoms in particular um which and you're looking at the guy who first managed to carve one of those in half in a did precision really? way yes i did there's wow. a paper out there somewhere very beautiful images from they the are gorgeous diatoms. Um, they're wow. amazing amazingly structured inside they yeah. make these glass structures amazingly detailed but they are really good at capturing carbon and they are really important to the food chain and the what what these particular researchers have been doing is looking at the isotope analysis of this particular silica and working out where it came from and a lot of it of course has come from these big melts after oh, ice yes. ages and which has flowed down so that's a really important part of yeah. the long-term ecosystem and they're trying to work out how how much it's going to change as the globe is now warming of course and this sort of stuff is happening again so it, it's all yeah. you know this the, the the nutrients from the land you know the yeah. effect in the ocean the importance of silica in the ocean for diatoms to actually exist is crucial so it's almost like it, it's all connected well and people uh, <laughs> you're speaking my language mate but you know there's been this controversy over where it comes from whether it's mainly from rivers yeah sure but these ice melts are so significant, some of them, that it looks like they've managed to connect the dots between where some of this silica originated and where it's ended up. Yeah, nice. And a lot of it, of course, ends up at the bottom of yeah. the ocean. Yeah, same thing. So, hmm. Dr. Ewan, what do you got for us? I've got a relatively simple story because I thought taking on the microbiome was enough if for one day. But, I thought uh, you were just doing that because Chris is here. <laughs> <laughs> Please continue. So it's, it's basically a story of life in the fast lane. And this is about a really impressive little fish called the turquoise killifish. Um, um, which is not very big, uh, 54 millimetres, I think it is, um, as an adult. But it sets the record for the fastest time from essentially hatching out to being reproductively mature, and that is 14 days. Oh. So that's pretty wow. impressive. So this is a little fish that lives... How long does it live total? Uh, not very long, probably, because they live in these ephemeral... So ephemeral means these uh, puddles that disappear. Yeah, so right, they live right. in the savannah in Africa. Um, you have a rainfall event. Um, these little eggs hatch out. Mm. The fish madly reproduce, the puddle dries up and they're all dead, except for the eggs. And so oh, wow. what they found is that these eggs basically can sit in the mud, of course, and they can sit there for quite a long time, many, many months, yep. and then wait for the rain to come again. Yep. Um, romantically speaking, the males and females, they really get down to business quickly and it's not particularly elaborate. <laughs> so the male basically opens his fins, the female says, yeah, yeah, okay, she leaves an egg, she goes to the next male. Um, yep. And she quickly moves around as many Leaves, males as she can. An egg? An egg, one wow. egg. Wow. One egg. Um, yes. So she's probably bet hedging there, which is also we know a lot yeah, about yeah, that, yeah. that females spread the risk in terms of, well, that male might be a dud, but maybe I'll try another male. And, yeah. you know. I wonder so, how fussy they are, because when, you, when t you're under pressure and, and you're trying to get around as many males as you can. <laughs> doesn't sound fussy. Uh, no, I doesn't sound fussy. I don't think that'd be you very fussy. It was like, pretty this, this puddle's drying out, let's just get stuff done. I was done. just thinking, <laughs> you, you, if four players opening your fins, you're going to need to have some pretty crappy fins with someone to say, yeah, actually, no, thanks, mate. <laughs> 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 So they, they'd looked at this fish in the past in a lab, and it was 18 days, but they've looked in the field now and revised that down to 14 days, which, you know, to put in perspective, a house mouse can get reproductive active with about 30 days, 25, 30 mm. days, which mm. is pretty impressive again for a mammal, but this is a fish. Much less obviously. in a puddle. 
much less in a puddle. <laughs> but yeah, fourteen days uh, reproductively active. And, That's yeah, it's it's pretty impressive. Yeah. yeah, it's not the size of your fins, Chris Kepi. It's how Tell you, you flap them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, that's so is there a segue there? I don't uh, know. There's a segue to Dr. Laura <laughs> with some news. What do you got for us? Hopefully, nothing sexually inappropriate. No, nothing inappropriate. <laughs> no, actually, I'm really excited about this story. It's one of it's it's unbelievable. It came out. So there's a study that came out in Nature Ecology just this week, and it is literally a 60 year long experiment. Oh, yeah. This is Ludmina's work, right? Uh, yeah. Well, it's the Russian <laughs> farm fox experiment. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing. So it's 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 really it's really incredible stuff. And basically, they identified genes that are behind domestication. But can I take you right back to 1959 in the former Soviet Union? This is where this all begins. Mm. So there's this Russian geneticist called Dmitry Belyev, probably screwing up how yep. I'm saying that, but he wanted to understand how dogs were domesticated. And, there was, and he hypothesized that it was genetic. And he could notice this because, say, you know, foxes that were, were a bit nicer had shorter faces, they looked a bit cuter, mm. and they also had floppier ears. Mm. Now, and, they're, and, they're, and just remind me, but they were being bred at the time specifically for coats. For fur, yeah, exactly. So, so, so there was genetic stuff going on there because people were yes. choosing them based on what gave the best fur. And this is this all kind of links in because doing genetics at this time is a dangerous game mm, because this yeah, is under yeah, Stalin's yeah. rule. Oh, yeah. And so this guy had to pretend that he was trying to breed... Fur coats. Fur coats. Yeah. You know, foxes for the best fur coats. But in reality, he was interested in genetics, which was dirty word at the time. Mm. Anyway... So what he used to do is he used to select out foxes that were the, which were the friendliest and he would start to breed them together. This has been going on for 40 generations now. Yeah. Um, so this is still going. I mean, this, this guy dies actually in 1985. Mm. They have to keep funding this project. So actually, say, in the 1990s, when funding went down to try mm. and breed these tame foxes together, they actually just started mm. to sell off these domesticated foxes. You can buy them for 9,000 9, yeah. US dollars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're wow. the Russian foxes. Yeah, but they're they, domesticated. They're domesticated. Yeah. So, if you, so with every kind of... If he, if he takes two tame foxes together and he breeds them, less than 10% is going to be what he selects on and selects on and selects on across years and years and years to the point where these and it really does come down to genetics these foxes actually is quite controversial they were always kept in cages so it's not like they're being sort of you know used to human touch in any way this mm. is true sort mm. of a genetic study so these these foxes that would be bred out and bred out and bred out they were all like dogs they would whimper when you would come mm. close to them and so that's how mm. we would pick them on and move forward anyway so forward fast to this current study which just came out this week they actually um, looked at the genomes between these populations of super tame foxes they also had populations of um sort of a cohort of the aggressive yeah. foxes mm. as well who would bite when you would come close yeah. to the cage so, so but just just to be really specific here one of the things because I, I remember i learned a lot about this about a year ago the the foxes that are beautiful to us aren't necessarily more tame to other foxes yeah they're like humans it's just it's just to humans yeah, exactly. that the behavior has been selected for so yeah. you could get one of the super aggressive to human foxes and they'd be fine to other foxes yeah it's not like they're just suddenly nasty freaky animals they're just aggressive to us yeah so all these is, foxes yeah. were completely kept in isolation and just mm. the human would approach the cage if it kind of whimpers and comes close to you and sort of behaves like a dog it moves yep. forward doesn't yeah. necessarily play well with others. <laughs> so, <laughs> other foxes. Anyways, it's it's really amazing from sequencing the genomes of the tame foxes, the aggressive foxes, and also some wild foxes as sort of a third cohort. They actually identified some genes which actually link up with some behaviours that we see in humans. So there was one gene that kind of stood out. It was called SORCS1. That's the science part. So they look for heterogeneity or differences in the genomes. And there was mutations in this one gene, and this is associated with synapse plasticity and neuronal signalling. This gene is associated with autism. Alzheimer's disease, so this was really mutated between the ta 
tame and the aggressive foxes. And there was also a genomic region which is associated with, let me get this right, Williams-Burin syndrome, which is characterised by anxiety. And this was mutated in the very aggressive foxes, which would show mm. a lot of anxieties when humans mm. would approach them. So... So they've, they've worked out these regions, they're associated with humans, and this is like the culmination of 60 years' yeah, worth yeah. of research. It's a true yeah. biology experiment. You just can't do and this it's, anymore. It's one no. generation per year. It's amazing. I, I believe it's one, there was one generation yeah. per year. So it's 60 generations of breeding or, yeah. or something similar to that. Yeah, yeah, it's incredible. Which is just amazing. There's, um, for people who want to learn more about this, actually, I mean, you can read the papers, but um, a good friend of the show, Kara Santamaria, who does the podcast Talk Nerdy in the US, she did a fabulous interview with one of the people involved in the study. And that's where I learned a whole lot about it because it was just absolutely fantastic discussion. I went reading and it's about it. Really, it's really worth listening to that podcast. I mean, we'll, we'll yeah, uh, Liv will put a link to it. But it's um, it's it's a great story, and it's a story of real what I would call old worldly science. It's entrenched that's in now transitioning as well. into genetics, uh, into into you know the sort of genetics we're doing today, and watching and watching how that's um how that's evolved. I love because, it because because it's just you know the old stuff just damn hard work yeah. like it's just damn hard work and and they didn't have the tools to do the genetics they just had to observe the effects you know the phenotypes so anyway fascinating it's stuff exciting. it's fascinating stuff now then uh i did want to mention just before we go to the break that um uh if you like me and you like to see researchers sort of beating up on each other uh you know, on the football field <laughs> uh, which who doesn't who does who would not like <laughs> yeah, exactly. to see a few mm. biomedical researchers yeah. just whacking into each other on a football field for a bit of fun i good mean times. it just sounds great a bit um, of white coat hanger no, a, good, uh, <laughs> yeah, a, a good listener of the show meg lucas she actually uh, from Monash, she she emailed me uh, during the week to let me know that this friday uh, 17th of august um at royal park in parkville there is going to be this between 12 and 5 p.m there is going to be this series of football games between the Baker Diabetes Institute, Walter and Liza Hall Institute for Medical Research, Peter Mack, and the La Trobe Institute for Molecular Science. Now, I could not imagine four groups that I would like to see pounding each other more than <laughs> I mean, the only missing piece for me is Laura and her team from the Doherty. But, um, Who are you backing? This, this should be fun. Look, I, I don't know. I, I think... Um, Based on, because each of them have a name for their footy team. So the, the, um, the BDI group, the Monash Bio, Biomedicine Discovery Institute, BDI. Um, what did I say it was? Baker. Baker oh, yeah, there. No, the Monash Biomedicine Discovery Institute, uh, the bench warmers. Yeah. Yeah. There's, okay, there's something yeah. in that. Uh, Walter and Lizer Hall Institute's the wombats. Sorry, guys. That, that's a, oh, I don't like that name at all. Anyway. Um, <laughs> La Trobe Institute for Molecular Science is the lasers. No imagination. Uh. Um, and Peter Mack is the Bloods. Well, you know, that could be good. Anyway. I'm going to back the Wombats. You're going to the Wombats? Yeah, Wombats are very determined, intelligent animals. And so they can really do shit damage to a car. And they, they have backwards pouches. Yeah, smart. <laughs> potentially as smart as a dog, solid animals, Wombats all the yeah. way. Anyway, there's, there's a series of matches, and, you know, it's a round-robin style thing, and I think it'll be a lot of fun. So if you're not doing anything on Friday, get on down there. Um, to Royal Park between 12 and 5 p.m. and you can watch a whole lot of biomedical researchers either play some awesome footy or just embarrass themselves. Either way, it'll be fun to watch. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm for it either way. It's a science show. If you've excellently tuned in, please stick around. It could be fun. In the studio with us now is Simon Verdon. He's a PhD candidate in the Department of Ecology and Environment and Evolution at the School of Life Sciences at La Trobe University. Simon, welcome to Triple R. 
Thanks very much. Now, you're working on a bird in, in some of the aspects of its, I guess, how it's endangered. It's called the Melly Emu Wren. Are we talking about a really big bird here or a really small bird? Because the name's a bit, you know, freaky. <laughs> yeah, good. It's a common question. It's a good one. I recently discovered this statistic that if you took all the emu wrens in the world, they'd still weigh less than a single emu. <laughs> wow! So, um, cool stuff. Is that right? So what remember that, and you remember it's a tiny bird named after a huge one. Yeah. And, and it must mean there's not that many of them. Is yeah, that, is it's, that right? it's hard to get a, a really good estimate, but our, our, our sort of rough, rough and tumble estimate is around six to 8,000 birds. Okay. So, so there's quite a, quite a lot of birds, but they're the smallest bird by weight in Australia. So yeah. we're talking about a five-gram bird. Tiny little guys. Yeah. Um, now, whereabouts in Australia do we find these things? Uh, well, it used to be in Victorian South Australia around the Mallee region, so mm-hmm. northwest Victoria near Mildura, and now wildfires have wiped them out from South Australia, and we're right. left with just a couple of spots in Victoria, and that's that's the worry that another yeah. bad wildfire season could mean they're not in Victoria either. And right. Lost them. right. Now, talk us through that scenario because I I suppose I've always thought whenever there are these substantial fires that the the land based mammals and other animals and so forth were you know particularly under threat but it surprises me to hear that you know a species is wiped out via you know that's that's airborne you know it seems do they not move on do they not sense that there is an issue on the horizon i mean what what's going on there what what is it their loss of habitat or their inability to move quickly or what what is it so most species i mean can't flee a fire fire is a huge fast moving Mm. force of nature and it will just wipe out most species um yeah it's it's a rare one that can escape the flames on a bad fire day yep um so this is a particularly bad flyer uh, this bird can barely fly at all. Around ten meters is a long flight for this bird. Ten meters. Yeah, and wow. also lives in. Is that the reason that the emu bear? In the uh, no, the emu bit is there <laughs> for another reason. Again, okay. So, so you keep going. This yeah, way. We'll, we'll come back to that. <laughs> okay. So yeah, not a good flyer, and it also lives in the most flammable vegetation in the landscape. Right. Like this really thick. Uh, areas of this dense hummock grass which just goes up like tinder. Right, so because, I mean, when, when you say 10 metres, I mean, I'm assuming that's distance, but in terms of height, I mean, yeah, presumably it, it doesn't get very high. Yeah, it wouldn't go above a metre, really. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah so it's barely, a, it's barely a bird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean that badly, but, but, you know, like, it's not sort of like a migratory bird. This is a bird that can't, can't really, you know, move its habitat around. Yeah, it's almost like a small mammal or a reptile, and it has, there's a lot of other small mammals and reptiles that function in a very similar way in the landscape to this bird and another bird, the grass wren. Yeah, I should say, if there's any emu wrens listening, I, would, I, would, I do apologise for that. <laughs> I realise when it came out that was probably a very insulting comment to any emu wrens. But, um, it, it, so what, what's the scenario in terms of its, uh, its area of coverage? Because it sounds like it's relatively restricted in where we find these things, which makes it highly vulnerable to these scenarios. Yeah, that's right. So it is in a couple of reserves that we think of as wilderness areas and huge mm-hmm. reserves. But actually, when you look at it, most of the habitat has been cleared in the early 1900s for farming in the, right. the whole soldier settler era. So yep. um, it is left in this fragmented system of reserves, and the issue has been that big wildfires have come through and wiped out a whole reserve in one go, and because it can barely fly, it can never right. get back there. And so that takes out that whole population. Yeah, and then that happens again and again and again, and now we're left down to two populations. Yeah. Are those populations similar to when we look at some of the other populations of, of endangered animals that live, for example, between various mountaintops and so forth? You see there's genetic variation between them. And, and it means that you can't reintegrate after, after a period of time. You can't reintegrate those populations to sort of drive greater diversity. I, is that one of the problems we're having with these wrens is that they're, you know, they've been separated for so long that they're no longer 
you know, I mean, I'm not even sure how you define different species there. Like, can they interbreed? Yeah, are, are is they, there outbreed, yeah. outbreeding depression? Yeah. Uh, so, interestingly, there's been one study done on the genetics, and it's sort of inconclusive, but they think it's genuinely uh, quite similar genetics across all the populations. Okay. Yeah. So the theory being that maybe... Mm. Yeah, that's an interesting comparison because mountain pygmy possums yeah. have this issue with loss of genetic diversity, but they've actually managed to rescue them by bringing genetic diversity in from other populations. So right. you can right. actually argue the opposite, that, um, yeah, as you lose genetic diversity through time, because you're on an island and you, you, you have no immigration mm. occurring, that's a big problem, but you can actually bring in genetic diversity from other populations. So that's mm. controversial in itself, mm. but it has been used as a conservation tool to potentially um, promote survivorship of populations. Mm. Yeah, that's right. And it's, we're seeing the same thing with the helmet honey eater. So the pe- people generally are saying now the risks of outbreeding depression are less than the risks of just having less genetic diversity in there. So we should get as much as we can. How well defined are the locations of where we find these particular birds? Because presumably if we, if we know that there is such a small number in, and we know they're in very restricted locations, we can presumably put in great effort to protect those locations. Is that, is that the, the goal? Yeah, that's exactly the goal. Uh, the issue has been in the past that doing strategic burning to protect these very special mm-hmm. locations, we could actually totally undermine Wipe the values yeah, of those yeah. locations. Yeah, right. So that's been a big part of my work, trying to figure out what are the really important areas so we can protect them, because there have been uh, planned burns on the maps ready to go straight through the best spot for emirans mm-hmm. in the world. Mm-hmm. And luckily, because we're working together and doing this research, we've been able to avoid some of those, what would have been catastrophes. And, and what about plans for similar scenarios? So, like, for example, with the Tasmanian Devil, where, you know, arc populations are set up in other locations to make sure that, you know, the, the species are continued. It seems like these birds are relatively small and easy to, to manage and maintain in, in a specific environment. So... Is there any plan to sort of set up some, you know, or set up new locations where perhaps that fire danger is minimised, but their their type of needs are met? Yeah, I guess there's a couple of points there. One is this bird, unfortunately, is in the scenario where we've got plenty of places where it has actually been in the past. Mm -hmm. We might as well start by moving them to those places. So that's what we're doing. We're moving birds back into South Australia where they've gone extinct. And we're doing that right now. So, um, so far, that's been going really well. Mm-hmm. But some people do like to talk about moving them north of the Murray River, where they've never been before, because right. there's really similar habitat. But I think, personally, you could just start by moving them back into their former yeah, range before you jump the gun into new areas. Well, and presumably, you know, if, if um, climate shifts and... You'd, you'd think maybe you want to move them south. I agree, I would, yeah. Is that, is that a fair call? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah um, not north, it's going to be hotter. You know, like, you, I mean, I know it's more complicated than that sometimes, and, and no, I think our, our climatologists really on the show would correct me, but, but as a guess, move south. Absolutely, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, and in terms of protecting their available habitat that you know currently is there, uh, obviously with predictions for climate change and more intense fires and potentially higher frequency of fires as well, how confident can we be of protecting these really key areas of habitat and, and what, I guess, practical things are being done to do exactly that? Yeah, so the track record obviously isn't great because we've had all these populations getting wiped out. But very happy to say in Victoria, at least, we're getting better and better at it. And that's what all these strategic burning, really proactive burning. And now we've agreed with the fire managers at um, the department that uh, they'll do proactive first attack on these fires out in these, treat these areas like assets that need to be defended. Whereas Mm -hmm. in the past, maybe there's been less of that sort of perspective. So definitely coming forward. Yeah. Yeah. And Dr. Ewan and I were talking about this before the show because we knew we were coming on. But is, is that burning off to prevent fire the way to go? 
there's it's just it just seems yeah i mean we were talking about this and just it seems a bit counterintuitive that that's necessarily the best way to protect the environment yeah i think that for me i would say it seems very intuitive and that's why it's been so widespreadly applied like you've got a lot of fuels you want to reduce the fuels so there's less fires so that's the intuition part but there's definitely good burning and bad burning right so uh you'll find a lot of areas the fires uh fuel reduction burning can maintain high fuel loads. Right. So that's the counterintuitive thing we're finding in a lot of landscapes. How does that work? So Because I think that's something people wouldn't have heard yeah. before. So if you can allow a, fo- a forest, say wet forest, yep. say mountain ash, get to an old state, like 100 years since mm-hmm. a fire, that actually doesn't have much fuels. It's got really high fuels up in the canopy, yep. Yep. not much shrub layer, mm-hmm. low fuels. So but harder to burn. Yeah, but yep. if we wait for it to get to 30 years, burn it, bring it back where there's all these shrubs in the understory, yep. all of a sudden you're just maintaining it at its high fire risk. Yeah. It's kindling. Yeah. Lots of kindling, yeah, but not, if not many can, logs. But if you can keep it under five years in strategic areas yeah. in the Mallee, say, then you can actually use it as a functional yeah. tool. Yeah, and the other thing that happens, of course, too, when you're burning regularly, is you're selecting for plant species that like fire. Right. So yeah. and so yeah. So through time, not only does the habitat structure change and potentially become thicker, and you get sort of rainforest species in some areas moving in which don't carry fire as well. But also, if you burn regularly, of course, you're selecting for plants that like fire, so they're more likely to carry fire. So it's sort of got this kind of positive mm. feedback, if you like. Mm. So, yeah, it's, it does, of course, depend a lot on the habitat you're talking about. So yeah. some areas, if you do do fuel reduction, they might have a benefit, but others, it appears from some more recent science that actually letting them go a long time may actually reduce fire risk. But, yeah, it's complex, like all things in ecology yeah. are. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Chris? Does, that, does this mean that if, uh, if the, in the event of a, of a wildfire, does this mean that, obviously, that in terms of um, defending against that fire, once it's started, once it's up and going, priority one, I guess, is, is humans, I suppose, and human assets. Where does this habitat fall in that list? So that's the, the exciting thing about the Malayinia and fire management landscape is we don't really have that conflict. It's a right. huge wilderness. They live in huge parks with not many assets or risks to life and structures. So uh, that's an exciting thing that we can say we want to prioritise this bird and we don't have to deal with that conflict like we often do yeah, in other great. situations. Mm. Yeah. Now, Simon, before we let you go, we better answer Chris KP's question about the emu word oh, being yes, in the name yes. of this oh, yes. uh, bird's name. Yeah. Yeah. So they have, uh, Mali emurans have a beautiful tail and it's got this fishbone structure which is, looks a lot like the feathers of an emu. Oh. And so that's where it gets its name. That's nature. much nicer. Yeah, that's much yeah. nicer. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's <laughs> it's, much nicer than can't fly, can bowl a bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, again, I apologise to the <laughs> to, to the Mali emurans. I mean, you know, the fact that you can't fly further than an emu can fall is nothing to do with the way you got your name. I think it's yeah, it's, just, um, it's it's fabulous. Look, these it, I'm, I'm a massive wren fan. We've, we actually had someone talking about fairy wrens on recently, and you know, I mean, um, they're just the most gorgeous little birds. And I think um, if you know people get out there and have a look at them, they'll see why they're worth protecting because they are absolutely amazing, some of the best birds we have here in Australia. Simon, thanks so much for coming in. Good luck with this ongoing work. It sounds like um, you guys are making real progress here because it's something that's, uh, you know, manageable. I mean, you hear mm-hmm. a lot of ecology things that are, frankly, too complex to manage, but this sounds like one that with some good planning is manageable. Is that, is that the Yeah, that's the my hope? feeling too, that we've got, got a, lot of, a little success story for once, which yeah. is really nice. Fantastic. Yeah. Good luck with the PhD. How long have you got to go? Uh, it depends on how quick I write, I guess. <laughs> Jeez, get right. Um, finish it up and, uh, you know, because then you can get paid. Uh, <laughs> Simon Bidden, the PhD candidate from the Department of Ecology, Environment and Evolution in the School of Life Sciences at La Trobe University. Three, triple,
Uh, you're listening to Triple R. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with us now is our next guest. She's actually also one of our hosts, Dr. Laura McKay. She's from the Doherty Institute and the University of Melbourne. Laura, welcome to Triple R. Such a such a difference to be here. I haven't even moved out of my normal chair. <laughs> <laughs> such an effort. It was weird because I got this uh, press release sent to me by Triple R. Uh, by way of, I think, the university uh, during the week, and I was reading it thinking, eh, that sounds vaguely interesting. And then I saw your name, and I thought, oh, well, why don't we just talk to you, since you want to be in anyway. Um, um, what do you mean vaguely interesting? Well, it's for you to <laughs> prove. Well, well, let's find out. <laughs> it's, let's find out. So you've been working on these infectious, infection-fighting... Get it, infectious, right? <laughs> infection-fighting wow. T-cells. What is a T-cell, Laura? Come on. I mean, I've got some vague memory of this, Come but on. throw okay. it out there for us. Okay. So I, um, so we work on, on T cells, which are a type of white blood cell. And these are the guys that can directly recognize cells that are infected or cells that are malignant, and they can directly kill these cells. Mm. Okay. Really important for clearing infections such as HIV and malaria. Also really important for cancer immunosurveillance and tumor immunity. Do, do we have these just floating around our body normally, do. or do we produce them on mass when well, something happens? We have them all the time. They're mm -hmm. specific for lots of different things. But when we have an infection, for an example, these T cells will recognize the infection. And then following sort of, you know, the clearance of that infection, there'll be a subset that we call memory T cells, which will remember this infection. Ooh. So when you see it again, that's why you've got a better response and you won't present with disease. And when we have a vaccination, right. it's these yeah. memory T cells that we generate. So when we see an infection for the first time around, You've got T cells ready to go in large numbers that can recognise this infection and clear it, and that's the basic principle of vaccination. So here's, here's a question for you: Why is it that some vaccines seem to last longer than others? You know, there's some where you have them once, and then there's others where people say, "Oh no, you really should you get a, a tetanus injection mm -hmm. every ten mm -hmm. years or whatever." Yeah. Well. Well, so there are kind of, there are vaccinations that rely on B cells, which are antibodies, and there are also uh, vaccinations which induce T cells, which I work on. Mm. Now, this kind of comes to like the essence of my research. The a lot of the vaccinations that boost T cells, well, a lot of them just aren't really very good. And okay. for a lot of infections like HIV, you really want a good T cell mediated immune response. You want these cells that can kill the infection rather than just also um, making these antibodies. Okay. Now, this is this is where the subset of T cells that I work on come in, and this is why someone like me would say. To make better vaccines, you need to not just think about T cells in the way that classically immunologists have thought about them. Mm -hmm. So in the past 10 years or so, we discovered a new type of T cell. Okay. So when, when people work on T cells and they boost these cells, they work on these cells that are always going around the blood. And when you study T cells in humans, you'll take a blood sample and you'll look at these T cells in the blood. Now, this dogma was really turned on its head about a decade ago where we started to look in the tissues of people. Oh. Not the and blood. Animals, yes. Yeah, right, okay. And what we found is that there are T cells within the tissue, such as the skin or the gentle mucosa or the lung, and there's a subset of T cells which we've termed tissue resident memory T cells that permanently live within the tissues. Now, these T cells, they're actually really different. And to make sort of new vaccine strategies that get really great T cell immunity, you want to boost these tissue lodged T cells rather than these ones within the blood. And so the factors and the survival signals that, you know, get you the tissue guys rather than the guys that are going throughout the blood are really different. Okay. And so this is what we're studying now. And to make better vaccines, you want to induce T cells that will go into the tissue. They will live for a really long time. They'll give you really long-lasting immunity rather than the conventional study, uh, conventionally studied T cell. Is a T cell in my lung better at dealing yes. with lung infections than a T cell in my skin? Yes. we like yeah, Specific so, to the type of infection, the type of part of the body. Yeah, exactly. So this is, kind of, this is the kind of new way of colour of thinking in the past few years. Now, if you want to prevent... Um, a, if you want a vaccine that will give you great immunity against influenza, mm -hmm. you want tissue resident T cells in your lung right. and you want to know how to induce them within your lung. So if you get, you know, so the pathogen enters, you want them there at the right place at the right time. So 
At the risk of over-specificating um, Dr Shane's earlier question... I'm not sure that's a word. Over? No, it is, yeah. Um, <laughs> where, <laughs> I'm sure it is. I'll look it up. Okay. Where would, uh, would, a, would a, a, you know, a tissue-living um, T-cell that would be best targeted for tetanus live? So, but for some, um, for some kind of, you know, uh, for some types of immunity, you want T cells everywhere. So you, right. you you do want T cells throughout all tissues and throughout all your throughout the whole body. But let me give you one example. If you want a really great vaccination against HIV, you want a huge population of T cells ready in the sort of genital mucosa. So when you first see the virus for the right. first time, you've got a lot at the front Support line of where that pathogen will enter yeah, exactly. Sure. Okay. So that's now what we're trying to do. So when we make new vaccine strategies, we're trying to get a lot of these tissue residents cells at the site where they're needed and we're trying to understand how can we get better immunity where at the front line in the lung or mm. the liver against malaria yeah, yeah. or the genital tract against hiv are there any vaccines currently on the market that utilize this this new Super way of looking new. at things yeah so this mm. this has only come into the sort of textbooks for undergraduate students one year ago so this wow. is super mm, yeah. super new research and now there's a lot of um, new vaccination strategies first they'll go through sort of primate studies and they're trying to induce pools of these tissue resident cells within certain sites but it hasn't sort of been translated into novel vaccines for humans yet are the t cells in in tissue are they beyond just where they are are they different in any other way so if i've got you know you know one floating around my blood and one sitting in my liver yeah so it's this is this has come out in the past couple of years and this is what's super exciting we actually find that these t cells within the tissue they're actually more functional so they can actually produce a um higher quantities of mediators which are better for sort of antiviral immunity or anti-tumor immunity and say in the past year and this has been kind of like a massive thing for our group and many groups around the world is that now we're finding that actually the best subset of t-cells against cancer for example are these t-cells again that are in the tissues and really recently in collaboration with um Shireen Loy and Paul Neeson at the Peter McCallum Centre, which is across the road from us at the Doherty, we found that if you've actually got a higher number of these tissue-resident memory T-cells in the breast, it's actually a prognosis of you'll have a favourable outcome against breast cancer. So Mm. these T-cells, they can also fight cancers, and we found that if you've got a higher number of these T-cells within the tissue, you have a better outcome against certain cancers. Mm. So we're really trying to work hard on trying to find out how can we get more of these T-cells to sit in the tissue to protect against various cancers. Fantastic stuff, Laura. Um, I'm going to stop you there. More than just a little bit interesting? That's great. Or? Yeah, no, that's great. That's I had no idea about this uh, variation in T-cell stuff, so it's really, it's really interesting. Oh, okay. and well explained. Well explained. <laughs> Three, triple, And, of course, it is Radiothon next week. It's very exciting. It's got a science theme. We're all getting very excited here mm. on the show, and uh, it's going to be fun. Anyway, we uh, should hand over to Dr Ewan uh, to tell us all about the microbiome. Thank you. So, as an ecologist, I'm in- interested in complex things and interactions between different organisms, and it doesn't get much more complex, as far as I can tell, with the microbiome, which is a massive, massive topic in the scientific world. Um, we've been talking about health issues, including cancer, just off-air before, and, and Cancer is also implicated in the microbiome and how bacteria deals with cancer as well. So the take-home message is that microbiome appears to affect a whole range of things that we're learning about recently, probably the last decade or so, you know, things like obesity, anxiety, but a whole range of other things. And you've probably also heard about faecal transplants. Mm. People might have heard about koalas changing their diet. I'll get to that in a second. Mm. A, A whole range of amazing things all related to the microbiome. So what is the microbiome? Okay, well, it's essentially the microorganisms that live with us, on us, in us. Um, So bacteria, 
Also, single-celled structures called archaea, or however you pronounce that, however you choose, fungi, viruses, the works, okay? So a big bag of human microbiota that we're associated with. And for a long time, it was estimated, actually, that there was 10 times as many cells that weren't us in our bodies mm -hmm. that were, in yeah. fact, us. Now, that's been revised, and recently they think the ratio is more like 1.3 to 1, but still probably more cells that are not actually us, inverted commas, than are actually us. So what being human is is even actually up for debate. But... There is this large colony of organisms floating around doing things to us. And <clears throat> now, of course, there's good bacteria, and I hate using good and bad, but there is, it's all about the balance, right, which, again, as an ecologist, is really important because we know diversity in ecosystems is really, really important, and when, when one thing gets out of balance, potentially there's consequences of that. And that same thing happens with the microbiome. And so what we're learning is, is that this is a really fundamental thing for, for health of people, it affects people's behaviour. Um, can also have conservation implications, which I'll get to again in a second. Also, it's been used in crime investigations now as well. The microbiome? The microbiome. Wait I for didn't it. know that. <laughs> Nor did I. So it's tendrils in terms of it as a, as a theme are really, really expanding everywhere. Now, of course, where do you get your microbiome from? You get it from the external environment. You get it from your food. You get it from your mother as you're born. Now, there's a big difference between um, vaginal births versus cesareans in terms yep. of how yeah. much of um, micro... Um, uh, microbes essentially you get as part of that and people are also looking at how you can potentially replace that for people who for whatever reason can't have a um, you know a vaginal birth um, your microbiome is constantly changing as well through time so it changes mm. dramatically from birth for the first couple of years but also with your diet so we know as an example if you eat large nuts refined foods full of sugars your microbiome will change Lots of research around the fact that people who are obese or can't pr process certain foods have really different microbiomes to someone who doesn't have those issues. And so lots of research around that. Now, I mentioned the crime scene investigation. So we know how a crime occurs, <laughs> the forensic people turn up, they do all their weird things with you know, UV lamps and everything else. They're, they? all, oh, oh, yeah. they're all hot. Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. I clearly don't watch enough TV. You should. <laughs> yeah. um, but they're using it in two ways. They're using the microbiome in two ways, and this is again a very emerging area of, of research. But each one of us have a particular microbiote, you know, community, if you like, that is associated with us, and so essentially it's also a fingerprint. So oh, just boy. like your DNA is a fingerprint, yep. potentially your microbiome is a fingerprint. But now I'm just thinking: commit a crime, eat a load of sugar, change your microbiome, because they'll be onto you. Yeah, good point. Yeah, nice. So, so I that's, like it. That's yeah. Just, that's a movie, right? Just there. Hold yeah. Yeah. Lots of Mars bars straight up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> or right before. Yeah, or right yeah. before. Good right point. before. Yeah. But the other thing that they can also do is actually look at when a murder occurred, because as we know, again from forensics, people use things like beetles and, and insects and so mm -hmm. forth to look at how a body decomposes through time, because you get different um, invertebrate assemblages through time, but also you get a different microbiome assembly through time as the body decomposes. So you can actually look at death, you know, the time of uh. death. So you can actually associate all these things. So again, it's informing crime investigations. Sorry, I'm imagining the look on some criminal's face when their lawyer comes in and says, I'm thinking we should go for microbiome defence. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just give me a sample. Yeah. yeah. Spit here, please. Oh, yes. Yeah. That's an interesting point, because it? it does mean that the whole nature of samples demanded by the police is about to get a lot more interesting. Well, the whole other thing there, because you could also say, quick, take this, this I've got a poo transplant for you. It will get you off, trust me. <laughs> Eat oh, this. That is so good. That is such a good line. We just should, kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Did you swallow? <laughs> Back to you, Dr. Yuan. Did 
did you expect it really, to go I, this way? I really don't know where to go from that. <laughs> <laughs> but I will talk about faecal transplants and, and potentially that you shouldn't eat poo unless it's being controlled in a really careful way. I told so, you, Chris. I told you. <laughs> I, I, I think that that just sounds, it just sounds like a footnote. I think you shouldn't eat poo is the message. Um, well, you know. if, you're, if, you're a, if you're a baby koala, you don't get a choice. Your yeah, mum gives it point. to you, yep. right? It's called pap, and they, yep. they literally eat their mother's crap, mm. essentially. Yeah. But it's really, really important. Now, on the koala story, what's really interesting is some recent research came out where they looked at uh, two, essentially, populations, if you like, of koalas. Now, there's two uh, gum tree types, essentially, that koalas um, feed on quite commonly. One is manna gum mm. and one is messmate. Now, messmate's kind of the nasty one that you don't really want to eat because it's low in proteins, full of nasty things called tannins, which interfere with your digestion. It's really hard work. Yep. Manna gum, higher in protein, less of that nasty tannins. So koalas really like manna gum. Question is, of course, though, that manna gum is not always freely available everywhere. Okay. Messmate can be available in some areas. And so what they did was they did an experiment said, well, what if we got the microbiome community of the messmate eaters, the koalas that can eat messmate, um, and then took that and put it into koalas that are traditionally are only eating managum, can they now eat messmate? Turns out they can. Wow. Mm. Which is really, cool. really important because in a conservation sense, if mm. you're losing areas of habitat yeah. and this species is running out of its food supply, okay, yes, we want to stop that happening in the first place, but if you can't, can you actually so save these animals that, by giving them different availability of food by giving them a different microbiome? Does that mean that if I do a, change the microbiome of a koala that its appetite changes? I don't know if it eats more, well, but it's, it's able to does process it go, that food. So it can process it, but does it sort of, if you grab that, that koala and yeah. dump it in a in messmate tree, does it sort of go, hey, this looks nice now? I mean, it can digest it, but does it want to digest it, I guess? Yeah, I actually it. don't know enough about that. That's a, that's a great question about whether it would then sort of actively seek that messmate yeah. out. I, mm. I assume it probably would because if it's <laughs> able to eat it, because, you know, the thing with those nasty tans is they actually really interfere with the koala's behaviour. Mm. You know, yes, it slows yeah. them down, makes them not feel very that well, etc. So, that could be a learned scenario. Yeah, though, you know, like I, I ate a whole lot of these particular looking leaves and <laughs> you know, I really had trouble. and some fur issues. <laughs> but it's like, it's, you know, you know, like it's, it's craving, isn't it now? I just crave messmate. Yeah. Yeah. So, and of course, we we know that there's a huge area of research around at the moment about fecal transplants. So, for people who have issues with things like you know um, celiacs and so forth, a whole yeah. range of conditions mm. where they're now looking at this as a genuine option of yeah. actually giving people fecal transplants. So, people who don't have these issues have a different microbiome, one that yep. potentially inverted commas more functional. You can give them this little pill, and they again very much still in the development phase. So, going back to my joke before, don't just grab someone's poo and whack it down in the hope that that's going to be helpful because there's a whole range of issues yeah. that are associated with that that you don't want to Again, I told you, touch. Chris. <laughs> I, just, I, do feel like, I told you. I do feel like there's a really unfortunate sector of alternative medicine about to open up. I, just, I, I, I think it's already <laughs> happened. You oh, see really? stuff really? on the internet yeah. about um, people. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, yeah. People selling people, their poo. Yeah. People uh, recommending just, just have some poo. And I don't like, go to the right no, sites. Don't, no, don't. don't go there. <laughs> um, but I, I just find it just a fascinating area of research and in terms of, you know, there's the environmental context I talked about, but also people's mood and people's behaviours. So, mm. you know, the vagus nerve, which is this incredible structure that goes from the cranium right down, and vagus in Latin apparently means to roam, right? right. Which makes sense because this nerve is going all over the place. Yeah. It's going into all these different organs, got its little tendrils everywhere. And so this connection, it goes all the way down to your colon from, mm. from the cranium. So this thing is, you know, it's an oppressive structure and they're finding again that the microbiome is basically um, essentially interacting with the vagus nerve, which hence potentially explains why different diets lead to different microbiomes, lead to different conditions, different behaviours, you know, anxiety, depression and so forth. So 
it's still very much, you know, an emerging area of science, but it's already a massive one. Mm. But I just think the mm. number of questions and mm. applications it's opening mm. up are quite fundamental. As an ecologist, I just think this is fascinating because it's it, again speaks to all these interconnections between different organisms and how if you disturb the balance of these things and don't understand the consequences, the, the implications mm. can be quite massive. It, it, and it, it opens up the whole issue of the use of antibiotics. Oh, absolutely. Uh, to me, because the, the moment you start taking antibiotics, I mean, there's one thing about changing your food. Yep. You take antibiotics and it's just like a sledgehammer to your microbiome. Yep. And how that then affects you. It, it always, it's interesting to me how we don't feel sicker after the antibiotics have gotten rid of what they were there to do like you'd think you'd feel physically quite bizarre although you often feel exhausted after you know for for a week after you've been sick so maybe you know you're the virologist yeah well the interplay of the microbiome with the immune system is huge every immunology conference Mm. everybody is now revisiting what they know about every gene in any cell of the immune system Mm. and the interplay of the microbiome without that has huge effects Mm. that we didn't understand yeah i I didn't even mention the cancer link so Mm. you know you've got all these bacteria living on your skin and they've now found that these the particular bacteria living on skin that actually interfere with how um, cancer essentially starts growing and so they're producing these compounds which yep. essentially inhibit cancer growth so having these um, uh, skin cancer I should say so having these bacteria again on the surface of your skin are really really important in terms of reducing your likelihood of developing mm. skin cancer so just another example but yeah it's interesting uh, a couple of years ago I used a slide in a particular event and it showed all the different institutions around the world that were building centers for the microbiome yep. and it, the point of the slide was hey, uh, here in city of Melbourne, we should do this, or in Victoria, we should do this too. Like, this is a huge area, and it brings together so many different, you know, whether it's cancer treatments or it's immunology or it's rare diseases, you know, uh, immuno-based um, diseases, or whether it's mental health or it's uh, interactions with autism or, you know, whatever it is, all these things are all linked up. It's um, it's great. Well, you did it in 12 minutes, Bill. Yeah, I could, I could nice keep work. going, but yeah. Keep going for a while. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's fun. But uh, And Chris Capy, look, just stay clear of the poo transplants. For you know I'll do just, my best. It's much safer. Just sauerkraut, some kimchi. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. It's not the same. Resi- resistant starch, <laughs> you know, cold pasta. That's a good starting point. <laughs> I just, yeah. And, look, I know you've had your stuff on, um, on, online for sale for a while, but... <laughs> There's some processing required. I suspect that you're not doing, and that's probably why you're not getting the sales you were hoping for. I think you're targeting the wrong people. <laughs> yeah, I think you are. I think. Oh, anyway, uh, let's leave that one alone. Anyway, uh, folks, uh, we're going to have to leave it be, but next week we've got a really fun show for you because it is the Radiothon, and it's very important to the station, and the team will be bringing in uh, all these different pieces of science, some of which will be BS and some of which will be real. And the rest of the team will have to work out what they are. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, It's your turn to um, connect with us, which is great. We normally don't get to hear from you, but we look forward to hearing from you next week. Anyway, thanks so much for listening to Einstein and Gogo. Uh, Chris KP, Dr Ewan, Dr Laura, good to have you all in. Liv, thanks for doing our Twitter feed. I'm Dr Shane. Remember, science is everywhere, and we will chat to you again in a very fun show next week. Have a great Sunday. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.